You're listening to a podcast from Washington Post Live, bringing the Post's newsroom to life on stage. On June 17th, the Washington Post and the Knight Foundation joined forces for the third annual Free to State Summit on the First Amendment to discuss subjective interpretations of free speech protections when it comes to artistic expression. How do you determine what is a threat and what is artistic expression? In this segment, a recent Supreme Court case about explicit rap lyrics provides a unique and rich example. Let's listen. Good afternoon, everybody. My name is Wesley Lowry. I'm a national correspondent here at the Washington Post. Um, you guys go ahead and sit down. There's no reason for us to stand up. <laughs> uh, but I'm here. I'm really excited to get uh, to dive right into a fascinating conversation we're going to have this afternoon uh, about issues of free speech and artistic uh, freedom and about this moment we live in uh, where we often, so many of our political and societal conversations revolve around the idea of what is acceptable speech in public versus what's acceptable in private. And how do those lines bend when, when you're when you're an artist or a creative. And so uh, with, I'll shut up and, and introduce our, uh, our panelists. To my immediate left um, is activist Michael Render, who you may know as the Grammy Award winning uh, rapper Killer Mike. Um, to, to his left um, is the author and musician Simon Tam. And beyond him is attorney John Elwood, who has argued nine cases before the Supreme Court. So how about we give a quick round of applause for our. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you all so much for being here today. Uh, before we get started, I want to remind everyone uh, that you can tweet questions, uh, because eventually I'll run out of good ones, and I would love to hear yours. And so if you want to use uh, the hashtag postlive uh, to tweet questions, and also make sure to live tweet out all the smart things that they say so we can trend and whatnot. Um, but if you send your questions, I get them on this iPad in my hand, and I'll be happy to uh, cede the floor to you all uh, if you hear anything you like or, or want to hear more about. But I, I wanted to get started. Uh, Mike, a little, talk a little bit about the case of Jamal Knox um, and this amicus brief you and, and several other prominent artists signed, Chance yeah. the Rapper, Meek, uh, Yogati. Luther, Luther Campbell is important. Yes. Very important to mention in that too. Certainly. And, and so for folks who may not know this case, yeah. um, you, you know, Jamal uh, is a Pennsylvania rapper um, and they convicted him of making terroristic threats yeah. and witness intimidation after he wrote a song called Fuck the Police. I don't, yeah. know, I don't know what my, my beeping and censor is here yeah. post live, but hopefully that's okay. Um, and, and, it, and in it, you know, the song was a homage to NWA's 88 song, obviously yeah. the same name, but also spoke to some of his own personal experiences. Yeah. And, and they charged him and convicted him of a crime with this. You want to talk a little bit about how you got involved in the case, but also about some of the bigger thematic issues here. Eric Nielsen is a friend of mine, and he's a tireless advocate on the behalf of um, our First Amendment rights, and in particular in hip-hop. Um, if, a, if a kid in hip-hop disses a politician or a policeman, it's taken a lot more seriously than if Johnny Cash sees a man and shot, shoots a man in Reno just to watch him die. You know, it's, um, it's less scary um, when it's an artist that looks like the majority, apparently. So Eric fights this all the time, and he fights on the behalf of people in my culture and hip-hop, and he asked me to co-write with him. He asked other guys like Meek and Chance to get on board, and I went and sought out the only person that I'd honestly ever seen fight the federal government, go all the way to the Supreme Court, and win in terms of freedom of speech, and that was Luther Campbell, mm -hmm. um, who after, you know, Fuck the Police by, the, by NWA, which was a song that raised all type of irony, after that, he was charged in Broward County with, I think, obscenity or, mm -hmm. or something, and, and he fought and won. So these things are still happening now. What we're finding is rappers who have name and prominence are less likely to be prosecuted for things they say. 
So if you get Killer Mike half of one half of Run the Jewels that says fuck the police, it's radically different than with a kid who's just doing it at home and loading it up on Facebook. Now, what Jamal did was he did name two policemen in particular. Um, and the policeman that he named, um, I think, had in some way assaulted him or his friend um, to the point of injury. And essentially what I saw when I first read the case was that this is just a kid who was angry, who knew he couldn't shoot a cop, knew he couldn't fight a cop, knew he couldn't go stab a cop. Hell, how would he even find a cop? It's terribly difficult to even find out where a policeman is. And he's, uh, because he had the courage to say, this is what I felt like doing. Like, I can feel like hitting my mom, but if I hit my mom, my mom would beat the shit out of me. Uh, <laughs> so he voiced his feelings. And because he voiced his feelings, he has been prosecuted and is now serving time in the United States Penitentiary. And the scary part about that is to me, at what point do my feelings, um, are they not equal to the feelings of others or the feelings of the majority? And at what point do I get prosecuted just for feeling a way? Um, and then having the courage to say that I feel this way. I could say, and a bunch of us have said, even to the people we love, I just want to kill you. Well, if we let freedom of speech go out the door with it hurts my feelings, I believe that we put ourselves in an environment where feeling something and saying it vocally, publicly, could potentially get any one of us, any one of us put in prison. And what's really scary to me is that laws like this usually affect people who look like me first and worst. Well, and I want to drill into that a little bit, because I, I mean, you brought the example earlier of Johnny Cash. I remember Ice-T making the example. Cop uh, killer. Exactly. And he yeah. said, if you believe I'm a cop killer, you, you must think David Bowie's an astronaut, right? Yeah, the absolutely. Idea that clearly absolutely. the things I'm saying are not literal. <laughs> absolutely. Um, it, well, you know, how do you think the stigmatization of, you know, especially when we talk about hip-hop artists, uh, folks who are going to be predominantly black, might, might not look like the majority of the yeah. nation, certainly might not look like law, the majority of law enforcement. Yeah. How do you think that those, um, that, that portrayal um, and also those, those misunderstandings sometimes, how, how do you think that feeds into this? Well, let me say, first of all, I'm a son of a police officer, and I'm a cousin to two great police officers now. I have a police officer that's, I believe, a captain in East Point, now in this pally of Atlanta, and I have a cousin that's a sergeant, it's a SWAT team in Atlanta. So I'm supportive of, and I'm also a member of PAL and sitting about to be on the board of directors for Atlanta Police Athletic League. So I am not against police officers. I'm not against people who, um, who vote and, and vote for the people who govern them having police officers in our community. What I am against is the police officers being an occupying force. force. And I've used songs like Don't Die, in which I took a scene out of The Professional and the real life of Fred Hampton, where Fred Hampton was assassinated as an apartment. And if you look at the movie The Professional, <laughs> there was a um, scene where policemen entered his apartment to kill him, and he resisted. So I took the story of Fred Hampton, that scene, and kind of meshed my own story of how I got away from cops trying to assassinate me for being a person that dared to, to speak freely. And, you know, it was fantasy, it was fun, but had I been Jamal, I might be in jail for that. You know, but it's only because I was already considered a professional and a Grammy winner that people are just like, oh, man, the courage it took to do that, um, the imagination. It's, it's, it's tricky for me because I understand the need for law enforcement. I have a personal preference of being policed by people who either look like me or people who are from communities like mine. I think that a police are seen and have become an occupying force in minority communities because they're hiring people who look like the majority, they're hiring people who do not have exchange, dialogue, or experience with the people they're policing, and the police are being underserved in that many of them are rolling one patrolman to a car instead of two, many of them are being trained too quickly. It takes 19, it takes six, what, takes a year and a half to be a barber, about six months to be a cop. Um, should take a little longer to be a cop. 
um, you have to go through more protocol for engagement as a United States soldier occupying another land than you do as a police officer. And basically, people in my community are tired of seeing police officers get away with what they be believe is state-sanctioned murder. So beyond talking or beyond rapping or beyond artistically saying that, what I'm afraid is that we're setting up an environment in which not only the public still feels that they're in danger, and they really are, and I'm not just talking about the black public, just general public. I think that we're getting to the point where people are going to start pushing back. And that makes me afraid because, again, I have police officers in my family. I'm a supporter of good policing and good police officers. But I see that the most dangerous times in the communities now are when a young black boy, a young black girl on the ground, and there are three, four cops that don't look like them um, manhandling them in a way they shouldn't. And my biggest fear is that in this country, what we're going to start seeing is bullets flying, not from policemen's guns only, you know. Mm -hmm. um, so I think that in matters of freedom of speech, I think that artist freedom of speech should be protected. If you're not yelling fire in this room and causing people to get injured because they're running out, I believe, you know, you should be able to say it. I believe what Noam Chomsky said was, was true, that, you know, if you don't believe in freedom of speech for those you despise, then you don't believe in it truly. So, you know, I think that we are allowing agents of the government to murder innocent Americans. I, and not always innocent, but murder Americans without due process. And I think that if that does not stop, you're going to see more pushing the lines artistically. And if that doesn't stop, then I think you're going to see violence. Mm. Certainly. Now, in this case, the Supreme Court declined to bring up the case. But I wanted to bring John in here because I know because he's worked on a very similar uh, case. And this was the one of Anthony Ellenis. Right? Uh, can you talk a little bit about the contours of that case and how it kind of relates to the conversation we're having <clears throat> here and, and these issues of, of free speech and, and how it relates to artistry. Sure. Uh, Anthony Alonis was somebody who wrote, uh, after his, his wife broke up with him, he took to Facebook and uh, wrote in the style of rap uh, lyrics, you know, saying not very kind things about his wife, including describing killing her and things like that. Uh, it was, you know, almost uniformly posted with little disclaimers saying, you know, this is just me working things out. It's, uh, don't take it seriously. But he was prosecuted successfully for uh, making crimes. In that case, uh, the, he was prosecuted under, under a theory where the prosecutor actually said in the closing statement, it doesn't matter what he thinks. What matters is what a reasonable person would think. And so we argued in that case that you have to show an intent to threaten more or less, at least knowledge that the person who's reading it would feel uh, that their safety was a jeopardy and, um, uh, and you did it anyway. Um, I, I, my understanding of the Jamal Knox case, and I, believe it or not, I looked over my notes for argument and I had Jamal's case in my own binder because I knew it was coming down the pike. Um, and my understanding of Jamal uh, Knox's case was he argued kind of the opposite, that they, they convicted him of intent to threaten, and he was arguing uh, for the opposite, that a reasonable person wouldn't have taken it as a threat. And I think that's one of the reasons why they perhaps didn't take his case, is it was a, a little unusual in that regard. Mm. Um, <clears throat> But uh, I also think there may be more to it in that, you know, one of the things that came up a lot in my argument uh, for Alonis was a different standard. Uh, you know, we have uh, negligence, which, which the Supreme Court has said negligence isn't the standard, uh, but they haven't said what the standard is. And there seemed to be some interest in recklessness, which is the idea that you know there's a risk that people will be threatened by it and you do it anyway. And we were arguing for, you know, the other end of the spectrum, the, the strictest standard of the spectrum, which is you know that they're going to feel threatened and you do it anyway. Like, you know, you, that's the reason why you're doing it. Um, and I think one of the reasons why the court might not have taken it is because 
uh, the court is a mess on this, that, uh, you, you know, they were all over the map about where they were going to go, and I think they might not have been in that much of a rush to get back to it because they just don't know if the, 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 the votes would shake out neatly and that have five votes of majority for any one position. Certainly. So what, so what is the, the current standard as far as the case law is concerned in terms of when something like this is prosecuted? It's all over the map. It's all over the map. The only thing that has been established is it can't be negligence. Basically, the standard isn't that if a reasonable person would feel threatened by it, uh, you can be prosecuted. But there is uh, uh, there's a split, you know, all over the place. Uh, you know, among the federal courts of appeals and among the state uh, Supreme Courts. So, uh, you know, I can't say anything other than it's a mess. One thing, though, uh, and this is my pitch for the, the highest end standard that you have to show intent, is that the state standard in California, New York, and Texas, you know, big states with lots of people all require a proof of intent, and no one's saying they can't protect their citizens. Well, and how might this theoretically play forward? How is it different if the person you are allegedly threatening is a public figure, is someone who works for the government, who, you know, it's, it's not an individual citizen per se, but is someone like a police officer or an elected official? I think it's probably more likely to be taken as not a serious threat. I mean, it depends on the context, but if you do it publicly uh, and it's about a public figure, it's less likely to be viewed as a threat. Uh, the case that uh, inspired the true threats uh, exception to the First Amendment involved uh, a draft protester saying that if, you know, anyone ever gave him a gun, the first person he'd shoot, you know, take aim at would be LBJ. And the court said that that was not a true threat because of the context. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, I think that that's true as a theoretical matter, but uh, there are a lot of people who have, who do not take a joke well. And in my experience, police do not take jokes well. Alonis generally uh, was doing okay. Like, literally, this guy would post things online, and people would like the things he would, he would uh, not only was he not reported, but people would like them. Uh, and it wasn't until he uh, was visited by the FBI and then, you know, wrote his rap lyrics about that, that their, you know, their sense of humor expired, and he was uh, arrested the same day. No, it's amazing. Eminem built an entire career. I was thinking that earlier. Off, <laughs> off saying he'd kill his mother and ex-wife. Very good rapper, but he, he essentially did the same thing. He just made millions of dollars and never went to jail. Yeah, I don't think anyone ever showed up at his door to... Yeah, if I threatened my wife, she'd kill me. <laughs> <laughs> be a whole different panel discussion. Yes, that's um, Sabi, you're the only one on the stage, I think, who, in, on the briefs around these specific First Amendment grounds actually had your case brought taken up by the Supreme Court here, right? Can you talk a little bit about the the slants and the, and the contours of your case, and then we'll get in some deeper questions on that. Sure. So I applied to register a trademark for the slants, my band, um, but the government ended up not liking that. They quoted an old 70-year-old bit of law called uh, Section 2A of the Lanham Act, saying you can't register marks that the government considers scandalous, immoral, or disparaging. Now, in this case, uh, they said the term slant was disparaging, but only when it was used by an Asian-American band. So, in other words, they said I was too Asian to use this term. <laughs> Seven and a half years later, I was before the U.S. Supreme Court um, arguing for our, for our rights, and it actually the federal courts rejected all of our other arguments, uh, even arguments saying that, look, the, the trademark office is using our race against us. They didn't care about any of that. They just wanted to talk about the First Amendment. And when we brought up the fact that it was chilling speech, um, that the law violated our, our, you know, our First Amendment rights because of viewpoint discrimination, um, it got taken up by the court, and that's where we won uh, unanimously in 2017. 
And, and so, so your yeah. efforts here were essentially to kind of reclaim a slur, a slur right? You, you guys were, in some ways, ironically using this term. Yeah, in some ways, and I would also argue that the term slant is not inherently racialized. Sure. Like, you know, you, we could talk about a perspective or an angle or that, that sort of thing. But according to the government, because of the speaker, because I was Asian, all of a sudden it became racially charged. And, and so, going back to this kind of like true threats distinction, right? You know, how do you think the government should try to adjudicate these questions? Of, of uh, you know, how often, as an artist, as someone who's creating, um, you know, who's creating art and putting it into the world, you know, what what should the role of the government be in moderating it that way? I I think <laughs> if at all, I think extremely limited, if at all. I mean, here's the thing: like, art is meant to be on the edges, to push our boundaries, to cause us to question. It, it oftentimes serves as a mirror. And what we find is, um, artists, and par particularly artists from marginalized communities, we don't get the same benefit of the doubt as others. I mean, you know, we, we brought up Eminem here. A white rapper is treated much differently than a black rapper or a brown rapper. Uh, we, we found the case with, uh, you know, whether it's rap music or, I mean, and in particular rap music because um, music produced by black and brown communities tend to get treated differently than music produced by white communities, um, genre and otherwise. Uh, I, what we find is that it's because those, those in power, they just simply have different experiences. They might not have the same intention. They, their intention might not be to suppress speech or to like discriminate based on people's race, but when you don't have that lived experience, we don't understand what it's like to be in a community that doesn't experience the same privileges and rights as others, you're not going to provide that benefit of the doubt. You can't connect with that same life experience. That's why I don't say that dumbass term, N-word. Mm -hmm. It's dumb. The word is nigger. Mm -hmm. It was nigger when it was on the Jeffersons. It was nigger when it was on All in the Family. It was nigger when it was on Sanford and Son. And because of that freedom in art and television, I saw as a child racism challenged on television in a radically different way than it is today. It's swept over the day. It's covered over. It's something we don't talk about. We handle it um, much like a middle-class family doesn't talk about their problems versus confronting those things, and that's an artist's job. Artist's job is to say, why not, to push the edge, to push the limits. And, um, you know, I, I'm just, I'm tired of losing, as an artist, my freedoms of speech based on the whims of white America. You know, it, it, it seems to me that to be white, Anglo-Saxon, and Protestant in this nation gives you the ability to make or change the rules at will. And the rules just need to be the rules and fair for everyone. Now, Mike, you talked about two, you've talked previously about two different elements I wanted to drill into here. The first of which is this idea of, and Simon, you were just talking about this too, the idea, the power of art to kind of write injustice or to force conversation, yeah, to absolutely. bend and move a spectrum, yeah. and why it's important then for artists to be able to express things that the mainstream may feel yeah. uncomfortable with or feel off. But then also, and we've been talking about this already as well, kind of the double standard. You think about things such as like outlaw country, which are as violent as, uh, which I love. as any other genre, yeah. um, and and yet, I, I can't recall the last congressional hearing around no, uh, decency in country music, yeah, right? While, while, while we can think very specifically about cultural touchstones in our in our history, yeah. where rap music kind of came under this fire. Yeah. Um, and, and so, and so, what do you think? You know, what do you think is the importance of these genres and, and the freedom of artists to be able to kind of speak freely, even if that freedom uh, leads to some what some people might find offensive? Yeah as it relates to kind of writing of injustices. I mean, well, every, everything in art is going to offend someone. I mean, you wouldn't have fig leaves over 
over, you know, over, over statues in the Louvre if someone at some point hadn't said, oh, those statues that were originally sculpted with penises all of a sudden need to be covered now because I am offended. Mm -hmm. um, I, for, for me, I, I think it's just important that as Americans, I can remember Ms. Ellison, who I was definitely afraid of and didn't like as a teacher at first. She taught me to love our Bill of Rights and Constitution because that was the first time I realized fair is fair and what's for everyone is for everyone in terms of rights and privileges. Well, we see that's not happening in the world. We know that not only uh, poor people, not only black people, not only um, you know, m minorities, we know that exclusively rights get kind of given more or less. We know that if your cousin looks like Waylon Jennings or Willie Nelson or Johnny Cash or Chris Christopherson, he has a better chance of beating his case than if he looks like Snoop and Redman. Um, we know that with national decriminalization of marijuana now, a lot of people are going to get credit for it, a lot of activists, a lot of workers, but I can show you a line that leads straight back to Cypress Hill, that leads straight back to Snoop Dogg, that leads straight back to people like Rick James. And if it's not duly acknowledged publicly, if the media isn't pushing the line of that narrative, if the media isn't giving us that freedom, if the media treats rappers differently than they do, do country artists, then you're going to see um, a galvanization of what the prejudices that we already see, where if you look like one, two, or three, your tr case might be tried radically different than, say, if you look like John, who doesn't look like a rapper, but he's slick. <laughs> John, where do you think, since you're on the hot seat now, right? The, uh, the, where, where do you think uh, things sit in terms of freedom of expression? A lot of our political conversation sometimes paints these conversations as if it's in a crisis, right? Campus free speech issues or frustrations about a cancel culture or censorship. As someone who works kind of in Ultimately, in the law on these issues, where do you think things fit right now? I do think sometimes we all have a bias to think the thing in front of us is the worst it's ever been, mm -hmm. and we can't imagine it ever being worse. But where, where do you sit as someone who's kind of engaged in the case law and knows what's coming down the docket? Well, as, as far as threats go, uh, as I say, it's kind of a mess, and um, you know, I, I think that there are two ways in which uh, you know minority viewpoints are not given appropriate weight. Like, in one is that they are more likely to be viewed as a threat. Yeah. And then secondly, and relatedly, they're more likely to think, you know, so what if this speech is chilled? What's the value to it? And that's a question that I was actually given during the argument. Wow. And I mean, Elonis was uh, as white, but I mean, they said, what's the value to this speech? And uh, I had to try to tie it back to, you know, more conventionally political speech uh, of, you know, the blood of uh, time, or what is it? The tree of liberty is occasionally watered, occasionally needs to be watered with the blood of tyrants. And uh, you know, a, a, abortion protesters' speech and things like that. I had my in my back pocket. I had a few examples because you try to wrap yourself around political speech because nobody cares about you know if, if a few rappers are deterred. Um, but you know, as a whole, uh, uh, I, you know, I, I, I can't even get started on campus uh, because <laughs> I have a 17-year-old who's starting to interview now, and I kind of live in terror. It's all incognito to me. <laughs> <laughs> now, now, what do you guys think about the, the difference? though between the government suppressing speech and the conversations we now have about people like to use any number of terms, right? Whether it be a cancel culture or the online mob, the, the sense that we, we do live in a time where a lot of people have the ability to weigh in immediately. If they don't like, they might they might be mad at Mike already about something he said, and he might have been canceled on the time we've been on the stage. Who knows? You know right? me. <laughs> <laughs> but like, you know, how, how do you all 
you know, how, how do you all sort that out, right? Because I said, on the one hand, there is a sense of, um, because everyone has the ability to weigh in so quickly at anything that offends them, a sense that there can be kind of a building of momentum anytime someone says something that might be offensive or out of line with the current conventional wisdom. On the other hand, if I'm offended by something, is it not my right and free speech to say, hey, cancel that TV show or get, you know, how, how do we weigh the, the rights of the individual speaker versus the rights of kind of everyone's speaker? I remember having, I, I don't know the total answer, but I know that you've never heard a more ridiculous argument than a black man, me, arguing with my white friend, and I'm arguing pro-Roseanne Barr. <laughs> <laughs> and not that I'm any fan of the, of the things that she said or comments that brought her to get her show canceled, my fear was, and like Chomsky said, if you don't believe in freedom of speech for those you despise, you know, you don't, you don't believe in it at all. My thing was what she did um, was her freedom of speech. She lost her job for it. And I was telling my friend, who's a huge Colin Kaepernick supporter, well, so essentially you're telling me Cap should have lost his job too. And he says, no, it's different. I was like, well, how is this different? And he said, well, she made millions of dollars she should have known just to shut the F up. And I said, that's the exact same thing Sean Hannity says about Gap. So I have to understand that in my want for freedom of speech for everyone, you know, I have to understand that if I'm going to support Kaepernick, who wore socks with policemen portrayed as pigs, mm -hmm. and people got upset about that and said he should never be able to come back, then, you know, I have to say about the woman who commented that another woman of African-American descent looked like, you know, a, a movie character that was not flattering, I have to say to myself then, you know, according to the private businesses that own them, broke for them, broke rules, broke them and out, but I don't believe either one of them should be out of a job. You know, I honestly believe both of them should have a job. Now, what should end the job is when the ratings drop or when your stats drop. Mm -hmm. So if you're not throwing that ball like you should in San Francisco, say, well, you're out, okay, cool. Mm -hmm. If you weren't bringing the ratings to ABC and you say you're out, then that's cool. But for me, I'm willing to be uncomfortable because I know tomorrow I may say something. I, I, I've personally said things that people didn't like, mm -hmm. and two weeks later, the people I, that people didn't, didn't like what I said were on the whipping post themselves getting whipped. Mm -hmm. You know, some of the people who didn't like stuff I said <coughs> months later were um, exposed as being sexual predators. So, you know, it's a lot of people don't like what you say, mm -hmm. but I just, to me, it matters that you're able to say what you say so I can honestly hear where you are and I can decide whether to cancel you. I don't need the whole world. <clears throat> from my perspective, to cancel you, because if that was true, I never would have heard NWA, I never would have heard the Ghetto Boys, I never would have read the autobiography of Malcolm X, I never would have known what the Black Liberation Army was. I never, half the things from my childhood that formed me into the man I was, I never would have been able to be exposed to, because those things would have been labeled everything from hate speech to black identity extremists. <laughs> now, I want to remind everyone again, that I hope you're all live tweeting. I haven't checked my phone the whole time I've been up here, which is the longest <coughs> I've gone today. But uh, make sure you're sending your questions to us at hashtag post live. I got a question from, from Matt who asked, and I'll start with Simon on this. What he's asking is, are, are there artists that are actively kind of hurting the argument in favor of freedom of speech? Or is there something an artist can do? You know, there's, is, can it ever go too far? Are there people who are, even if what they're doing is speech that should be protected or is protected, Something that, as artists yourselves, you might say, well, maybe I wouldn't have done that one. Well, who's going too far is going to be determined by your personal experience, too. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? Like, you know. Certainly. So, so what is going too far? What's the litmus? What's the bar for going too far? Mm -hmm. You know, I believe as an artist, it's my job to challenge at every step of the way. I get in more arguments about my wife for hypotheticals than anything else. <laughs> like, why isn't polygamy legal? That's not, you know, you can't, you can't really say <laughs> that. That, that you know was what the saying? one you chose? Yeah, well, right, I mean, right. I had to take a shot at it. You know what I mean? <laughs> but, you know, you, you, 
am I simply going to be persecuted by what I suggested since I've been a kid? My first grade teacher was like, if he felt it, he was going to say it. So I feel like the artists are not in charge of seeing the bar and stopping at it or, or seeing the edge and stop it. We're in charge of jumping <laughs> so the other people know it's safe to jump or not. But our, our job is to jump. It is to push the limits. Yeah, I think it's so, so important to recognize that when it comes to freedom of expression and when we're talking about the First Amendment, we're really talking about protection against government punishment, government Absolutely. backlash. Like we're talking about protecting the sensibilities of the public, but we haven't really thought about this idea. What does it mean if the government says your work as an artist is hate speech? Absolutely. What does it mean when the government says you're racist? Like Absolutely. they told me that, and, and the general public that my Asian American band that does anti-racism work on behalf of the US government, by the way, <laughs> was racist. There are unintended consequences. And yes, the Supreme Court resolved it in my favor, but there were many years where it affected my art, it affected my livelihood. I had to walk away from, from being a full-time musician to fight the government to tell them that they were wrong. Like there's all these other kinds of things that I think ought to be considered. Now in terms of like artists and, and that kind of fine line, I think it is a very subjective thing in nature. And that's why I do believe in the marketplace of ideas because you know, some, to some people, some words might be, you know, racial slurs, they might be extremely offensive, but for other people, especially those people in those communities, those could be very powerful forms of expression and self-empowerment. And, and my argument is like, there would be no such thing as a racial slur if we didn't live in a racist society. Deal with the culture, not the symptoms of a racist society. Deal with those root problems first. Absolutely. Now, Mike, I want to get back, jumping off of that, I want to get back to something you were talking about earlier, right? Where you, where you were saying, right, you're fine if, if the ratings drop, all right, cancel the show, right? Yeah. And, and, and drawing a distinction between people kind of talking with their pocketbooks and what they yeah. want and what they don't versus yeah. the sense of someone's trending on Twitter because they said something rude yeah. and now the show gets canceled. Yeah. So I remember one of the things people got mad at you about was one of the Bill Maher outrage cycles a few years ago <laughs> um, where, where Bill, in uh, what I can only presume he, house he thought was a joke, called himself a house nigga. I thought it was a pretty good fucking joke. I didn't like that joke. I did. All right, but, but, but people were, yeah. so people were, some people, were offended by it. I wasn't. To put some preface on it, he's light-skinned, too. They saw he might have actually called him a house nigga. Right. It, it, it spoke to some more personal <laughs> yeah, experience. It was different. My right? dad likes it. I, I uh, joke with him about you that. You understand. But, yeah. <laughs> I tell people all the time, though, if Harry wasn't coming, somebody in the house didn't know to tell him. You know, we, we couldn't have won the war without some house nigga. But I, the joke didn't bother me as much because he's been a tireless advocate on the behalf of African Americans that would not have the opportunity to speak other places. When you look at, um, from the 90s, the loss of late-night African American TV, Arsenio gone, Magic's Not Good Show was gone, a few other late-night talk shows were gone, where else would you see Cornell West? Mm -hmm. You know, where else would you see members of the Me Too movement? Where else would you see Killer Mike? Where else would you see uh, O'Shea Jackson, better known as Ice Cube? Where else would you see these radically, um, radically different than the norm African-American experiences or, or voices if it was not for Mars? So he had been more of an advocate with and for us than he had, than not. So I could take a dumb joke from, from an ally mm -hmm. and just tell him, you know, that was a stupid joke. But I didn't want to see a show get cut off the air because what happens to Michael Eric Dyson? What happens to Nina Turner? You know, what, ha what happens to all the people who, from my community, may have a voice that, that provides a tertiary train of thought that's not given to them by their political party or members of government that speak directly from our community? If we lose him, we lose one of the last stages to do that. So I wasn't willing to join the Take Bill Down protest, because to me, because it was stupid. 
If it was just a bad joke, it was just a bad joke. You know what I mean? But I don't think, I think that we've now come to a point where <clears throat> there's a political meme, I think it's called Savage Memes or Ugly, ugly Memes on, on IG, it's maybe called Made by Jim Bob or something. Mm -hmm. But people got angry with me because I complimented one of his memes. It was funny to me. I laughed. I didn't even agree with it. He made me a meme that was, that, that was not complimenting me. But I appreciated his perspective because it was different from mine and it forced me to think. But people who follow me got angry because I laughed at a guy they didn't like joke. Whenever we get to the point where we're like three-year-olds and we can say, you hurt my feelings and I'm going to cry, my mommy's going to punish you, the government being mommy or daddy, we're treading dangerous ground. I love the UK. It's a great place to visit. The fact that they can designate what's hate speech now, the government can tell you what's hate speech, a government that has taken from countries, robbed and looted, has not returned gold to Africa, is not giving <laughs> natural resources back, can tell me what's hateful. I don't, I don't trust that. I don't trust government enough to be morally sound, to be apathetic enough, to be empathetic enough. I, well, I trust them to be apathetic, not empathetic enough. I don't trust any government enough to give up that much of my rights. And I think that the, because I have children, I have a 24-year-old, a 21-year-old, a 17-year-old, a 12-year-old, my biggest fear for their generation is that they're going to get, uh, what they say, in, in their feelings to the point that they give their power over the government. Mm -hmm. Because in giving your power over the government, you start to give your voice over the government. You start to lend yourself to the whims of government. And that's a very dangerous thing to me. You know, how long before African Americans outlaw from saying the word nigga? Yeah. I mean, because literally on TV now, they'll, they'll, they'll try to tell you to say the word. No, fuck you. I, I can say nigga. Mm -hmm. like, like, my great-grandparents suffered through this. We have captured this word. We have turned this word into whatever terms of endearment, whatever we want it to be. It is mine now. You know, I can't tell my gay uncle what to call himself. He has endured that struggle. I can't tell this man that he can't name his man. His people have endured this struggle. Mm -hmm. So to me, we have to get to a point where we're willing to trust the groups that are smaller than the majority. We're willing to trust individual freedoms over the rule of government, and which we can and also listen to people cry and moan and bitch and complain and not go create a new law about it tomorrow. Mm -hmm. Well, I think that's a really good segue back over to John about this idea of the laws and how does the government, at a, at a time when people can't express their frustration and their outrage, mm -hmm. and, and when we are having, you know, we're in a, a country that is shifting and changing, and our cultural norms are changing, and our mores are changing, and people are being confronted with things they might not have seen or thought about previously. How does the government interact with that, right? How, how does the government regulate obscenity to the extent it can, or, or should it? Um, but beyond that, how does it do so in a way that, does, that doesn't, as we said, allow the government to decide what's hate speech and what's not? Because some of us maybe are a little skeptical right. of the government's character on that. I, I, think, uh, I, I think this is a point that Simon might have made. I mean, minimally. I view it as uh, uh, really performing a minimal role because, uh, you know, state compulsion is a kind of a terrible thing to put in, and particularly for something like free speech. And I think, uh, especially at this point, um, where, uh, you know, basically the government has virtually a perfect way of figuring out from your phone, this is my phone gesture, uh, that, uh, you know, exactly whether you had the, the wrong mens rea. Uh, I mean, I don't think there's any reason why you can't uh, limit threats, at least, to actual intent to, uh, <coughs> to put someone in fear, because you can find everything on the phone. I mean, you can prove up exactly what was going through their head. You could probably find some text like 30 seconds beforehand saying, watch this, you know, um, that uh, there's no reason why you can't uh, make as free of a marketplace as possible uh, for speech. Of course. 
With that, I think we're going to wrap up and hand off to our next panel. But can you guys do me a favor and give me a quick round of applause for this excellent conversation? Uh, Thanks for listening. To hear more interviews from this series and other Washington Post Live programs, visit us at WashingtonPostLive.com.